The Health and Human Services and Justice Departments are looking at regulations to improve health care for people with disabilities. The National Council on Disabilities Health Equity Framework lays out steps agencies should take to eliminate medical discrimination against people with disabilities, an issue the council says got worse during the pandemic. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the commission's chairman, Andre Galagos. When you look at the different categories of people with disabilities, whether they be people like me with mobility disabilities and have paralysis or people who are blind and with low vision, deaf, hard of hearing, or those with intellectual and developmental disabilities, persistently and systemically in each jurisdiction, we're finding that they're having problems obtaining basic health care and treatment when needed. And so that's an issue that we've been determined to get addressed by developing the framework. Now, the framework itself, we started developing the framework last February, and it took a good process of 12 months to get it fully defined, articulated, and then out to the public, which we released last week. Let's unpack some of the components of this framework. One of the four pillars here is this recommendation to give people with disabilities a specially medically underserved population designation. Help me better understand what this designation would mean in terms of an equity argument. When we're looking for a special medically underserved population designation, we're asking Congress to direct the Health Resource and Services Administration to designate all people with disabilities as a medically underserved population under the Public Health Service Act. And so what that means is that individuals with disabilities would have the benefit of having federal research monies directed towards research that would address the health disparities that currently exist and examining unknown health disparities affecting the population as well. It would allow for federal financial assistance to federally qualified health centers and other community health centers to focus on care and treatment of people with disabilities. It provides for incentives for physicians to dedicate their professional careers to address the care and needs of people with disabilities by way of providing loan repayments uh, and uh, federally financed training programs to allow them to become competent to care for the needs of people with disabilities. It would result in higher Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement rates for certain treatments that are provided for people with disabilities, again, as an incentive to have physicians focus on the care and treatment of people with disabilities. Because right now, there's a dwindling number of providers that are willing to participate in Medicare and Medicaid programs to address the needs of people with disabilities. One, because they really aren't trained on how to do that. What's shocking to us is that a physician can become board certified across many specialties in the United States without having received any training whatsoever on how to care for the needs of people with disabilities. And that would change then, of course, if we're designated as a special medically underserved population. With that designation, there's about 20 other benefits that are associated with that as well, all aimed to really focus on the care and needs of people with disabilities. Another thing that's worth digging into from this framework is this recommendation to capture more disability data. What kind of data would be captured as part of this recommendation? So it's necessary to capture information relating to a patient's disability status in all public health surveillance systems and Medicare, Medicaid data, and in other assessments that are being conducted by healthcare providers, whether it's at the federal level or at the state level, because right now there's not much information that is being captured to be able to identify persons with disabilities and their healthcare needs and the issues that they're seeking treatment for. And we found this 
to be a prominent problem during COVID and the response to COVID. We know that because of news articles that have been written during the pandemic, that people with disabilities have been disproportionately affected by the virus. But the true indication as to how disproportionately affected they've been is not truly known because there's not a significant amount of data being collected as to the disability status of patients that are contracting COVID. And we have a standard death certificate in the United States that's used that doesn't capture the designation of disability, whether the decedent had a disability or not. And so uh, we don't know the percentage of people that have died as a result of COVID, uh, how many of them were people with disabilities, although we have a great sense that we're disproportionately affected by that as well. So what we're seeking for is an improvement of data collection concerning healthcare for people with disabilities across the lifespan. Uh, so not only affecting people with disabilities who are adults, but, but children as well. And what we're looking for is for improved uh, data uh, capturing so that uh, public health service providers can, can capture data in real time to devise strategies to meet the needs of people with disabilities in a crisis such as a pandemic, and also to craft solutions to people with disabilities when they see a prevalence of certain conditions and diseases that are affecting people with disabilities as a community. That's what we're looking for. And again, the Affordable Care Act provides provisions for that to occur, but it just hasn't happened yet. And that's why we're calling for enhanced data collection. All right. So in terms of next steps here, what gets sent over to Congress for them to work on and what gets sent through the agency rulemaking process for them to put this into effect? We've been meeting with respective federal agencies that, that would likely have jurisdiction over some of the components uh, and also meeting with um, legislative offices of jurisdiction uh, over some of the additional components, uh, really to crystallize the issues, the components, uh, to get their input and get their concerns regarding those. And so with that, we developed the framework. And so the next steps are to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with agencies of primary jurisdiction over the core components and over the remaining 35 components to discuss this and to move it forward. I can share with you that we've already had meetings with some of the, the offices on the Hill that would have primary jurisdiction over some implementing uh, some of the, the components and we're lining up meetings with others to discuss further to taking it from, again, the, the framework on paper into legislative action or administrative action. We've advised previously Department of Justice and also Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights on the revisions that we would like to see to the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act to address some of these issues as well through rulemaking. And you're going to see later this year, both Department of Justice and Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights have agreed and committed to looking at these issues in rulemaking. And so we're anticipating within a couple months that Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights will issue its notice of proposed rulemaking. And then later on in September of this year, Department of Justice will issue its uh, advanced notice of proposed rulemaking to try to address some of these issues. Andre Galagos, chairman of the National Council on Disability, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship 
and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then Let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, 
confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.